reading in chapter 1, starting in verse 27, through chapter 2 and verse number 2. Beginning in verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. Chapter 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege it is to worship you in song. And we know that if it was not for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, we would have no part with you and we could not give you worship That would be acceptable in your sight. But Lord, we thank you for your grace that you receive us through Christ because of what he has done and by your grace. And we now desire to worship you, Lord, as we sit, as we listen, as we pay attention, as we hear the preaching and teaching of the word, and as we study the word as a congregation. We ask that in this time that you might, by your grace and by your Spirit's power, work in us and apply the word now effectually to each one by your grace and power. We ask your blessing in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good to, good to be gathered together again. Amen. This morning and uh, have our Bibles in our hands. As we say every Lord's Day, the Bible, of course, is that which keeps us straight. Amen. God's thoughts sometimes, uh, well, never are our thoughts. And our thoughts can be certainly influenced at times. And so uh, it's good for us. Amen. To, to gather together this morning to have our Bible's open because the subject that we're going to be looking at, that Paul, is, as the Spirit of God led him to write to the church at Philippi, is a most uh, interesting, almost to the Western church mind, to us who are Americans, those of us who have grew up in the churches in America, almost a foreign thought to us. And so this morning, as we often say, amen, if we're going to be a Bible-believing church, we then should look in the pages of Scripture and we should see ourselves in that Scripture, amen, that the things that Paul is addressing, the things that he's calling on the believers to do, we should then look at ourselves and say, is that as a church, as a congregation, as a fellowship, those who have been called out by God to come together, are we then certainly following Scripture, are we behaving, if you will, in such a way? 
The title of our message this morning, of course, is Let Your Conversation Be As It Becometh the Gospel of Christ. Brethren, let me just start out by saying, a church's manner of life is worthy of the gospel only, I'll say that word again, you're going to hear this word, only if the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel is indeed the biggest, and I'll use that term so the young people, the biggest thing and the brightest thing in the church. That's the only way, brethren, that a church can indeed accommodate those things that Paul is calling on the Christians this morning at Philippi to do. Only the author of the gospel, only the author and perfecter of the Christian's faith, only he was redeemed and justified and saved them, amen? Only he can make the church's manner of life. The church, again, we have to define what that is. It isn't the building here. If we were meeting in someone's home this morning, the church would be gathered together, amen? And what I mean by that is the church is a group of gathered saints who were saved by God's grace. They were sinners saved by grace. Amen. And this is exactly who Paul is addressing this morning. We understand that part of the gospel message is that none of us are worthy. (laughs) That's the that's the bad news, amen? You look at Romans and how God led Paul to, to describe that and to divide that, that glorious letter up. It's all bad news, amen, until we get to chapter 3. And so part of the gospel message is the bad news that none of us are worthy. All of us have been come undone, brethren. But then there's the other side, isn't it, of the gospel. And that is that glorious that powerful, that that amazing change that comes when the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Father uh, applies the the merits of Christ, when the Spirit of God regenerates the mind and takes the heart of stone out and puts in that heart of flesh, that glorious change, that reflection of the new man that comes from the work of of Christ. Think of that for a moment. And really, this is what's going to be unfolding this morning. That glorious work that God has done in the believer's life. And that the believer's life, amen, should follow what we say. Amen. And this is really, really going to be the main thrust this morning for us. We have for the past several weeks been seated under the tutelage of the Holy Ghost in the classroom that we would call the book of Philippians. What a glorious letter that this has been and is in Scripture. In fact, we are for our own good, and we have been, brethren, for our own good, continuously and constantly as we have been going through this book, been reminded that indeed within the church of Philippi, and again, can I say it again, within our own fellowship, that the Lord Jesus Christ is and must be the brightest and the biggest thing that is in the center of the church. You remember that Paul, in verses 4 and 5, his joy came from the fellowship of the brethren in the gospel of Christ. The gospel, gospel gospel-centric, that which Paul is always as a teacher and a preacher. In verse 7, he defends and confirms the gospel. Amen. Verse 12, he says that his suffering is advancing the gospel. Now, again, there's a foreign subject to those of us who live in the West. The suffering and the advancement of the gospel. Brother Dean just came back from India. I'm sure he could get up and tell us some stories over there. How different it is compared to what we have here in the West. In fact, in verse 17, Paul spoke of the platform that the gospel would be preached. So again, we see all just the beginning of chapter 1. The gospel, the gospel, 
the gospel, gospel centric. And now this morning, in our text, as we gather together, he calls on the church to live a life worthy of the gospel and to strive side by side together for the furtherance of the faith. This, brethren, is such a needful thing, again, as we consider the Western culture, how we think, how we uh, view church life. You look at us as, again, let me just say this again. We look sometimes within the walls of the churches, whether they're in a home or whether they're here, whether they're gathered wherever they are, and many times it's difficult to find that church in the scriptures. And so, again, we want to carefully examine this morning. What does the church at Philippi, what do the brethren at Philippi, what do they look like? How are they acting? Amen? And so this is what we want to see this morning. Look how Paul starts us out there in verse number 27. Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse number 27. Now, the very first word is what I call the Holy Ghost, attention getter. A getter amen. It draws our, our religious affections immediately to what Paul is going to say. Look at that first word, only. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Again, the Holy Ghost, using that word, beginning that word, he arrests our immediate attention. It's an emphatic word that means this and no other. This above all other things. This is what Paul is saying to them. This above all other things, brethren. Only, only, only live your life in such a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me say this, brethren. The gospel has transformed us into the image of Christ. Therefore, we should be what? Christ-like. Amen? We should live a life that is Christ-like. We should, as a Christian, be in practice what we are in our position. Can I say that again? As a Christian, we should be in practice as where we are. Amen? This is the thing that we should be having in a position. And Paul here uses the word conversation and ties our practice and our position together and again you don't find carnal christians in the bible again these are things again brother that we that we have to address there's just some truths amen there are christians who are backsliding christians who are sinning but there's no such thing as a carnal christian living a life continually as a devil it does not exist Anywhere, anyway, anyhow. So a Christian should be in practice as they are in position. That word conversation literally means to behave, to live as a citizen, a permanent resident who enjoys, if you will, the privileges of the place where they reside. The question becomes for you and I is, what does Paul say? Where does he say that you and I reside? I'm glad you asked this morning, very inquisitive. Let me just turn to chapter 3 with me, if you would, this morning. Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse number 20. So again, Paul's calling on the brethren to live, to be citizens, and to live in such a way to make sure that the lips and the life follow each other. Look at chapter 3 there, if you would. Look at verse number 20. Philippians chapter 3, look at verse number 20. For our what? Our conversation is where? Is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, we should live, amen, as saved sinners, as we're living on the earth, as though we are indeed citizens of heaven. 
Look what he says. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So again, Paul is calling on them. That word conversation is literally that we should live where we reside, which in reality is citizens of heaven which is really quite an amazing thing. Now, this, of course, is a biblical truth, brethren, that is all throughout the pages of Scripture. Again, we saw in Bible study this morning so many cliches and so many things that are just not true, and yet churches teach it, they preach it, they believe it. That's why there's so many false professions, brethren. Amen? Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere, does it teach anywhere, amen, that one is going to come to Christ and be changed by Christ, and then walk away and not be changed. Do you understand that? When the Holy Spirit comes in and changes you, you are changed. Do we sin? Do we wrestle with it? Do we fight with it? Do we struggle with it? Yes, but we don't like it. Amen? It should do what it did to David. I lay in my bed. I'm weeping because I'm so frail and weak. Not a lifestyle, brother. Not a lifestyle. Let me show you this again. This is a truth that is taught throughout scriptures. Again, like we saw this morning in Bible study, it's not something the pastor's making up, amen? Look at 1 John. Let me just show you this here again, amen? Because, again, we've been so weakened. We've been so, if you will, deluded by the culture that when one actually looks at scripture and we see what it actually says, I was telling uh, the brothers in prayer time this morning that we had some visitors in Bible study. They were probably shocked, to hear what was actually being taught, what the Bible actually says. Because it's so weak. Men are so weak, they're scared of scaring people off. Oh, I don't want to scare them off. I don't want to offend them. Well, I'll tell you what, I'd rather have the Bible offend them than me, first of all. But second of all, wouldn't you rather be offended to righteousness than to continue to live as a devil and then say to yourself, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm all right. When in reality... You don't find that in Scripture anywhere. It doesn't exist. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Let me show you what John said, First John here. Again, what we want to do, brethren, is have our lips be in sync with our lives. This is really what Paul is saying. If you're professing to be saved, if you're professing to be a new creature in Christ, then we should be, our lives should show that. Now look at what John says here in First John chapter 1. Look at there if you would. 1 John chapter 1, look at verse number 5, and again, we know when I preached through the gospel, this, this, this book here several years ago, how important it is that we started not in chapter 1 like most books. Most books of the Bible, like we did in Philippians, we started in chapter 1. In 1 John, you don't start in chapter 1. You start in chapter 5. You know why? Because John said this to them, you will know, amen, you will know you're a Christian by what? By everything he wrote. Amen. From chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. This is how you know. This is what you look at, and you look at your own heart, your own life, and you go, does my life reflect this as a general rule? Again, we're all sinners. Well, yeah, unless you're different than me or different than anyone else. We are all sinners saved by grace. And so we wrestle and fight with it, yes. But at the same time, that new nature, that new creature in us, there's something about it. There's something amazing and strong about that, being able to grow in the Lord. Look at what John says here. 
Look at verse number 5. This then is the message which we have heard from him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him all is no darkness. What's those first three words of verse 6? If we say. Now watch, brethren. John says, if we say this, then the holy life should be following that. We shouldn't just be giving God lip service and saying, well, I'm a Christian, and then live like a devil. Live carnally, because it doesn't exist. Look what he says. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we what? We lie and do not tell the truth. So if we say we're Christians, and again, I'm not saying we're perfect. We are not. We struggle and we fight with sin. There's no question. But if your life, as a general rule, is a life filled with sin, then you have a problem. That's why John wrote in chapter 5, I've written these things so that you may know. <laughs> well, one of them that we might know is if we say this, and we walk in darkness, we lie to ourselves. Look at that. Look at verse 8. If we say, <laughs> again, this brings the reality of the gospel. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Again, if we say these things, again. Now listen, he doesn't stop there. Over and over again here in the book of 1 John, we see this. Look at chapter 2. Again, brother, all I'm saying, all we're doing is laying the groundwork to dismiss this idea that one can be saved and just live a life of sin and there's no problem. Hey, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to use my own self as an example here in a moment because, believe you me, the words of a lost man pierced my heart through and caused me to get my conversation right. A lost man said something to me one time. Amazing. Well, look at chapter 2. Look at verse number 3. The Bible says, and hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commands. He that what? Saith I know him and keep not his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. So again, brother, he that says it and then doesn't do it, you're a liar. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to those around you. It's amazing. Look here at verse, uh, if you would, verse 6. He says it again. Look at it. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to what? Walk even as he walked. So when we say we're Christians and we, we, we tell people we're Christians, we should be walking and living like Christ because of the powerful work that the gospel has accomplished in us. That's the glory of God. You realize that. I say it all the time. The amazing thing, when God is glorified in the life of a sinner... He's glorified in that the sinner is lost and on his way to a devil's hell, has no desire, no love of God, nothing. And God intervenes. God comes like he did to Paul on the road to Damascus. He saves him there. That's bringing glory to God, God that would save a wretch such as I. That brings him glory. That's all it does. All you bring to the table when you come to the table of Christ is your sin, and he then deals with it. That's what you bring. And he makes you a new creature it's an amazing thing this holy behavior should follow look at verse 9 and then we'll move on but again chapter 2 look at verse number 9 he that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even as until now again brethren if you say that you're a christian and you're 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 with your lips you're saying one thing your life should then be following what you're saying amen that we should look like christ we should be born more made into the image of christ not into the world, not into this nonsense, again, 
of uh, like we saw. Can I bring it up? Oh, boy. Here goes the pastor again. Here he goes. Amen, right? That was brought up this morning. Anybody watch the Super Bowl? I'm sure you probably did, and some of us can't stand it anymore, right? The wokeism, the liberals, all these people all over the place. But I had to watch the commercial. you got to watch one of the commercials, and then you shut it off. One of the most ungodly, unholy, unbiblical things you could ever do. Blaspheming God with their commercials. Two women washing their feet out in front of a baby-killing mill. God gets us. Well, God gets us, but you know what he does? He changes us. He saves us. He regenerates us. He makes us new. That's the love of God. It's a stunning thing. That's what Paul is saying. If you say you're a Christian, then your life should indeed follow that pattern. Again, not perfectly, not in any stretch in that. Now, let me just say this. Very early on, after the Lord saved me. Listen now, brethren, I'm going to show you my age. Back in 1987... That's a long time. Some of you are going, 1987, was that, you know, does that when, when you know, the, the, the pilgrims come over uh, during that year? What happened? In 1987, the Lord saved me. Do I believe a Christian back, can backslide? Yes, I do. I participated for a short time in that. Most amazing thing when you think about that. My old buddy, who, again, the, the lost man, who I boldly proclaimed to him that I'm saved that I'm different now, that I'm not like I used to be, ran into me in a place where there was, shall we say, I was maybe indulging a little bit in some worldly things. And he came up to me and he looked at me with this look on his face and he goes, Mike, I thought you told me you were changed. Now think of this for a moment. A lost man in 1987 knew that the Christians should not look that way. What has happened in 30 years? The Christians look like the world. You can't tell the difference. But a lost man comes up and he says, I thought you said you were saved and changed. And brother, I can't tell you what a blessing from God that was. It's an amazing thing. That's what you call an attention getter. A lost man coming up and saying, you're not living like you say you are. Those words pierced my heart, brethren. And you know what it did? It changed my course and my conduct. When I started to consider that and go, wow, this lost man even sees it and knows it. I knew it. But boy, to have them come and pierce you through in the heart like that. Now they'd say, hey, you want this? You want that? Join us. It's an amazing slide we've been on. And so Paul here again is wanting to keep us from doing that. Paul is saying that the citizens of heaven should behave accordingly. Amen? This is what he's saying. Our practice, brethren, should be in sync with our position. And this really is the important thing this morning. At work tomorrow, at work tomorrow, you should be the same as you were here this morning. As we're sitting here under the word of God. Listening to the preacher preach. When you go to work tomorrow, you shouldn't show up around the water table or around the water, whatever, that cooler, around the table and act like you've never been here. What a terrible testimony, as I always say. <laughs> right? Nothing says there's like there's no power, no power in the blood than one who says they're a Christian and lives like the devil. Nothing like that says that, that there's no power. There is power in the blood. And that power, of course, changes, and it's the only power that changes men and changes their hearts. There's no question about that. Now, look what he says there. Look back there at Philippians chapter 1. 
look there again at verse 27. We'll be hanging out here in verse 27 for just a little bit. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse number 27. Only, only, only. Because again, brethren, think of this for a moment. I don't want to get sidetracked or chase a rabbit down a hole. But you know when a Christian acts unholy in front of people, you know what that does? It besmirches the Lord's name. It brings unholy things upon his name. Again, just like that buddy of mine said, I thought you were different. That's what you said. So brethren, we must pray, all of us, that the Lord will give us the strength, the power, to live a life worthy of the gospel. Amen? Now look what he says here. Look at verse number 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. It's an amazing thing, brethren, when you think about this for a moment. The Apostle Paul here is saying to the brethren that our behavior as citizens in heaven, I'm going to steal a word from the liberals this morning, must not be environmental. <laughs> How do they like the other? Oh, they always talk about the environment. Our faith in Christ must not be environmental. What do I mean by that? That we are, that we are pushed one way or the other by those things that are going on around us. Whether it's people or things, our faith in Christ is not environmental, and it should not be. Paul says, hey, whether I'm there or whether I'm absent, I want to hear of your good affairs. And those good affairs are the things that, of course, are going to follow. A life worth living is worthy of the gospel. This is what we're going to see. In fact, look at verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. So again, our faith in Christ is not and should not be environmental. You should not fear men more than you fear God. Do you understand that? That's why, again, a lot of churches are weak, they're wimpy, they're sissified, because they fear men more than they fear God. The preacher, the Christian, should always fear God first, because then it won't skew what you say. <laughs> it's amazing when we... When the Lord led us out of the SBC, many of you know, well, this church actually was the first SBC church in Bismarck, Southern Baptist Convention I'm talking about, and it spawned five other ones. And when we said, wait a minute, hold on, what are you doing? What's the convention doing? Well, it's going woke. It's going this way and that way, and it's doing all kinds of evil things and promoting things that God hates. And I said, oh, no, nope, nope, we're, we're leaving. You're not taking our money anymore. You're not spending it for on Harley-Davidson's and then going down to Sturgis and sitting in a little tent with a two-minute little, hey, uh, would you like to get saved? Do you want to win the Harley-Davidson? Can you answer these three questions? And remember, Howard, I got an email from one of the guys. Sends me an email, goes, hey, man, somebody got saved down here, but you got to remember, Pastor Mike, hey, they might not remember it because they were extremely intoxicated. Yeah. No, 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 no. One never comes to Christ and doesn't know they came to Christ. Yeah. Okay? We pulled the pin. Sayonara. And you know what happened? I was amazed. You know, 
Somebody put that up there a long time. It's an amazing thing. I'm, I'm amazed, really, by how little people are amazed at things. But what happened was people left the church because of it. And you know what it revealed? It revealed that they would rather follow a convention than Christ. Think of this for a moment. Oh, brothers, Christ is first. Christ always must be first. No matter what us elders do, no matter how the church, the direction the church goes, it must always be a life, a church that's worth living according to the gospel. Amen? Always. It's an amazing thing to behold what's happened. He says here, your faith is not environmental by nature. It's not dependent upon those things that are happening to us or around us. But rather, and again, brethren, you have to keep in mind, Paul here is writing to a local church. Can I say that again? Paul is writing to a local church, one that is gathered in Philippi. He's writing to them, and he's saying this. We are to stand fast in one spirit and have one mind and to strive together for what? For the faith of the gospel. In other words, Paul is calling on the church to unify. Now, we don't unify just for unity. You understand this, right? Like the sissified evangelicals do. Let's just all sing kumbaya. Let's just gather together. We all believe the same things. No, we don't. Never do you unify around something other than Christ and his teachings. Again, the first and brightest thing of the church. That's what you unify around. That's where unity comes. You are to be in one mind with one another concerning the fundamental things of Christ. Not wokeism. I keep saying that word. Why is that word in my head today? I don't know why. Because it's so dangerous to the church. And so many have fallen for it. It's amazing. You do remember what Christ said, right? The Lord Jesus himself. He said, don't think that I have come to bring peace. But division. Division about what? Division about who he is. He's going to bring division between a mother and a father. A son and a daughter. A father and a mother. All of these things. Why? Because he's mean? Because he, he, just, he doesn't love the relationship they should have with him? No, because he divides. Fundamental truth divides. But it does a glorious thing all at the same time. Not only does it divide truth from error, it brings those who love the truth and believe the truth together, doesn't it? I was just talking with this brother this morning. It's hard to find a good Bible-believing church. It's hard to find one that focuses on the Bible, teaches the Bible. That's what I have to offer you this morning, the Bible, the scriptures. I don't have a, uh, what do they call that, a zip line. I don't have a cannon that goes off when somebody gets baptized, a bunch of devils. We have scripture that indeed needs to be the central focus of what we do because that alone changes you. Zip lines and the pastor sucking on a binky doesn't change you. Disgusting, unholy, ungodly things. It's a crazy thing. Paul is so gospel-centric. He says that we're to be of one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, let me just say this again. He's speaking to a local church. And you know, as you look around, this truth has been so unheeded. It's been so not followed scripturally. 
because many believe that they have no responsibility to the church. Right? We live in such a society today that everybody, everybody's fleeting. Everybody's just fleeting along, doing whatever they want, no problem. When in fact, Paul says that we as a local church are to gather together in unity for the furtherance of the gospel. Amen. We have a responsibility one to another. We have a responsibility to Christ to be together in one mind, one spirit, striving for this. They act as if there is no mutual relationship when, in fact, brethren, this is all Paul is talking about in our text. Listen, he says, stand fast in one spirit. It literally means to fuse, to blend together in unity within the local body, united in Christ, as I said, and in his teachings. We're not being unified just to be unified you know, over whether or not we should cut a tree down or not. We are gathering together. We're unified in Christ and his teachings. We're to be of one mind, to have unity amongst ourselves in our thinking, in our reasoning, and in God's purposes. Do you understand that? Ultimately, in the end, it is God's purposes that we are concerned about. That's what it means to be of one mind and one spirit. Striving together. Listen to this. I like this. That word strive, biblically, it literally means to labor hard. We understand that. To use exertions, to endeavor with great earnestness. Listen, to wrestle in company with. That's literally a biblical definition of that word strive that Paul uses. To wrestle in company with. Brother, and that is what we call coming together as Christians, unified around Christ, wrestling one with another for the sake of the gospel. This is what Paul is reminding the church. In fact, I want you to see this again. We don't even have to leave the book of Philippians. This teaching is, 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 is it, it saturates all the pages of Scripture. But look here at chapter 2 for just a minute. Look at verse number 1. We've got to be in one mind. Look at what he says. He says to them, if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, and bowels, any bowels and mercies, any affections and mercies. Look what he says in verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be, what? Like-minded, having the same love. Do you see that there again? We're talking about biblical unity around the things of Christ. This is what he's saying. Look at what he says. Being of one accord. You know what one accord means? <laughs> again, I'm a, oh, I've been having fun stealing liberals' words this morning. The environmental word, I took that away from them. Now this one accord literally means to be in harmony with one another. One accord, brethren. One mind, one thought, one spirit. We're to be in one accord with one another. We are to be in harmony with one another. And look what he says there. Of one mind. Again, brethren, we consider the depth of this text. When you consider what Paul is saying to us. I don't know about you, but when I studied this. And I'm sitting in my office, and I'm reading this, and I'm looking at my own life. Pick the mirror up. I picked the mirror up like that, and I went, oh, you know what? i got to see more of, more of Christ in that. May he change us concerning these thoughts, brethren, about how we are to act towards one another, how we are to be towards one another, how we are as Christians to strive together for the gospel instead of veering off in our own little worlds like we often do. It's an amazing thing. Now, you say to yourself, well... What's the practicality here? Why would Paul address being one mind, one spirit, striving together, all of this unity? I'm glad you asked. 
Because again, he addresses an issue in this church. I'm not talking about our church. We've had it in our church, but in this church. Do you see the relevancy of Scripture this morning? We're going to see this. Look at here. Do you know what it's like? Okay, ladies, uh, I'll pick on you this morning a little bit because Paul addresses two ladies who are divisive towards one another. He tells them to be of one mind. He says to be of one mind. Stop this division. It's affecting the church. And, oh, brothers, we've experienced it, haven't we? Not just with ladies, but with men, too. When there's divisiveness and strife in the church, it affects the whole church. Look here what Paul says. Look at chapter 4. Again, this is why he's laying the groundwork. And again, as we go through the book of Philippians, you see it over and over again. One mind. Have this mind in you. Be like this. Be of mind of Christ. Think of these things. Why? Because it prevents these unholy things from happening in the body. Again, a local church. Look at what he says there in verse number 2. Philippians chapter 4, look at verse number 2. I beseech Eodius, and I beseech Synecdoche, that they be of what? The same mind in the Lord. So there's a division going on between a couple ladies in the church. And it's serious enough that he gives us verse 3. Look at what he says. For I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women who labored with me in the Lord. So in other words, it is such a tussle, such a division, such a disagreement, that we don't know who the yoke fellow is. When we get to this text, we'll see that. We don't know exactly who it is, but it's a brother in the church who was highly regarded by Paul. And he says, help them two sisters. They're being divisive one with another. There's a problem. Help them with it. Because all that does is it grows and it causes more and more division in the body of Christ. So this is practical stuff, brother. Paul isn't just writing this. The Spirit of God isn't just leading him to write something. He's addressing an issue, and it's an issue that we as Christians, we as elders in the church, have had to address and probably will have to address again. The question is, how do we address it? We address it biblically, just like Paul says, just like Jesus said, just like the Bible says. And why do we do that? Because it always fixes it right. Do you understand that? God's ways are always better than ours. When we follow scripture with something like this, like Paul is asking your fellow to do, you know what, it'll be resolved rightly instead of thinking our own ways. So as we consider that this morning, again, the practicality of this. Now let me say this again. We don't unite just for unity, right? To be sissified with the ecumenicals. We are one spirit of one mind for the faith of the gospel, amen? And for God's glory alone. See, when you remove yourself from the center of all attention, when Christ is the center of attention, it changes everything. It takes away your selfishness, mine too. I'm, let me speak to myself. It takes away my selfishness. It makes me love others like I should. Amen? It makes me treat my wife like I should, my children who are sitting here. It makes me do the right things. It makes me live a life that's worthy of the gospel. This is what it does, and I pray this is what it does for you, and it will, amen, as the power of God works there. Now, look there back, if you would, Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse number 28, and again, this goes back to our faith not being environmental whatsoever. 
your surroundings, your circumstances should never affect. Although, brethren, let me just say this. Look up here. It's easier said than done. Amen? I remember I preached a sermon on Job one time, and those are scary sermons to teach and preach. You know why? And I think I entitled it, it was a few years ago, but when I grow up, I want to be just like Job. I want to be like him. I want him to look. I want to be able to say and look and say, yes, God, whatever. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. And the Bible says there he never sinned. Never sinned against God foolishly, although his wife tried to help him out with that, but he never did. That's the kind of growing faith and maturity that we should have as Christians. This is what Paul is talking about. Now look there at verse 28. And in nothing, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. What a glorious thing for Paul to say here. Now, it's interesting as we certainly understand this. Uh, Paul has just taught us again to match our lives with our lips. Amen. Our behavior with our testimonies. Those two are together like Siamese twins. And when we live our lives worthy of the gospel, it comes with a heavy price from the world. When one is living the Christian life, it comes with a heavy price from the world. However, as you read on in the text, it also comes, brethren, with the glorious gift of God. It comes with a price from the world, but a glorious gift from God. Think of that for a moment when we consider this again. Paul says, don't be terrified of your adversaries. Those who are dispatched against you, in other words, those who are dispatched against you by their commander who resides in the pit of hell himself. See, again, this is the thing. When we're out street preaching, Brother Keith, Brother Dean, we've all been a part of it. We're out street preaching, going down to these little towns. Hey, that's a fun thing to do. Go down to the little towns when they're having some street dances going on and things get pretty raucous. You stand there preaching, teaching the truth, and it's an amazing thing, brethren. It was okay for a while, wasn't it, Brother Dean? It's been a while, but we're down there and everybody's listening. And it isn't long and the sheriff comes up and says, you boys got to get out of town. Things are getting raucous. The truth does that. That's what happens when you preach the truth. It's an amazing thing when you consider this and you understand this. The enemies of God. Now, he tells them, don't be terror-stricken, don't be panicked or shocked with fear, because this is, brethren, a token, a proof, a sign, a testimony. Listen, a double declaration by God. Consider this. Their Holy Ghost fearlessness first is an evident token of a sign of their perdition, of their spiritual ruin and damnable destruction of God's enemies. It's an amazing thing when you consider that. When you look at the text, you see that there, those, those double, if you will, declarations of God. To one, it's to their perdition. To the other, it's to their salvation. Amen? And again, when one is fearless, when the Holy Spirit of God makes you fearless, and you preach the gospel of Christ truthfully, and you stand up for the fundamental things of faith, the Bible tells us that that is a, a beautiful thing, that God's hand is certainly upon you. We see this over and over again. 
Look at Philippians chapter 3. Again, we don't have to leave the book. Philippians chapter 3. Again, this idea of perdition. This idea of total spiritual destruction and ruin. That's what it means. To one, as you stand fearlessly preaching to them, and they hear the gospel preached to them, it's a sign. It's a token. It is indeed one side of the token. Look at here, if you will, chapter 3. Look at verse number 15. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, that's mature, be thus minded. There's that word again. Again, again, he just keeps coming back. We have to be thinking Christ-like. We have to consider these things through the lenses of the Spirit of God as he changed our minds. And if anything uh, ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. There it is again. He just keeps using that word. Verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which also walk as you have us for an example. So in other words, we're supposed to look at the brothers. We're supposed to look at the Christians, those who are saying with their lips, I'm a Christian. Oh, how are you walking? Are you walking? Are you part of the world? Or are you actually walking as something worthy of the gospel? And yes, that's not being, I know, we don't want to be judgmental. You don't want to be judgmental to anybody. Uh, yeah, the Bible tells us to judge rightly. You understand that, right? The liberal's favorite line is, don't judge me. You're not supposed to judge people. Well, when I look in Scripture, I judge you based on Scripture, not on my own thoughts, right? Can I use myself? I don't like to ever use it, but, but I'm just going to use it. Some of you have heard it. When Marilyn Manson was in town and... Uh, Zombie, what was his name? Doug Zombie or something like that. Okay, they were filing into the into the center, and me and Keith and I don't know who else was there. We went down and we were preaching. We had a ready-made audience. There was five, six hundred, a thousand at a time. They were lined up to get into the door, and I just <laughs> I just sat there and preached them. They had nowhere to go. It's a beautiful thing. And I had a man come out of the audience, come out of the line, and come over and goes, "You're embarrassing Christians." You're an embarrassment to Christians. I'm a Christian too. Brother, I'm not trying to be judgmental. But I'm telling you, if you worried about their souls, you'd be here with me as a Christian preaching to them. Yes, helping to snatch them out of the fire. Instead, you look like one of them, you smell like one of them, you act like one of them. Brothers, you ain't fooling me. It's an amazing thing. Yes, we, we, we need to be... We need to judge rightly. Not act judgmental, but judge rightly. There's no question about that. Look at what he says. He says, verse 17, Brethren, be followers together of me. Mark them which walk also as ye have us for an example. Verse 18, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul's observing. People are live, giving lip service to God, and he's going, no, wait a minute. No, there's men who are living their lives that are not changed, that are not Christ-like, and in fact, it is their pattern. It is their lifestyle. That's what they're doing, and Paul says they're enemies of the cross. They're enemies of the cross of Christ, and then he says this. Look what it says, verse 19. Whose end is destruction, whose end is perdition. This is where it leads. Whose God is their belly and whose glory is their shame, Who's, who mind earthly things. Do you see that there, brethren? Yes. Paul's making right judgments. He's looking at their lives and going, you are not living a life that is worthy of the gospel. 
You know why? Because the gospel has not changed your heart. It hasn't changed your mind. You still look just like them. And we'll see here from Spurgeon's quote here in a minute what he thought of it and what the Bible certainly thinks of it. Again, brethren, I've lived it. I know what it is to be under the pressure of the Holy Spirit of God. When you're a child of his, you will get away with living a certain way for a while, a very short while. Amen? Because it won't be long. And the Spirit of God who saved you from the things that you're now doing, he will bring such pressure upon you, you will repent immediately. Right, Wendy? My wife saw it. The pressure. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what else happens. When the Spirit of God does that to you, all the world goes by the wayside. All of it. It doesn't matter what you have, what you think you have, what you don't have. It goes away, and Christ becomes the central theme of your life. Amen? This is a true Christian. This is what Paul is saying. This is what a true Christian looks like. Second of all, as we look there, Paul says, it is the evident token of a sign of the elect sure salvation, a gift from God himself. I like what one pastor said. The proof to Christians that the reality of their faith comes from God. It is God who gives that proof. It is by his order. Do you understand that? God is interested in his cause. So therefore, as he says, he is actively involved in your testimony. Do you understand that? God is concerned about how he looks or how he is going to be portrayed. In other words, he's going to make you right. Again, it doesn't happen completely overnight. It's a little at a time. I call, you know, the Bible calls it the drossing process. Oh, yeah. Well, I used to talk like this, and God says no more. I used to act like this in the office. God says no more. He slowly changes and drosses it and takes it away from you because he's interested in making sure that the miracle he created in you when he saved you and made you a new creature remains. Amen? That's what Paul is saying. You live a life worthy of the gospel, not in your own works, not in your own merits, because of what Christ has done for you. In fact, we see that here, don't we, in verses 29 and 30. Look there if you would. And there are two phrases that really grab our attention, that really bring out the importance and why it's so important. Look there at verse 29. Listen carefully to his words. For to you it is given... Now listen carefully. In the behalf of who? Christ. Listen. Not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Do you see the central theme of that text? Do you see it? It's on behalf of Christ for his sake. That's what makes what Paul is going to say valuable. Again, we're we're not running around being martyrs for no apparent reason. What's happening in the church here is indeed as we're going to see quickly. As he revealed the double declaration in 28 and 29, he reveals a double gift from God. Listen carefully. First, he says, he's given his elect the gift of believing. And our ability to believe in Christ is indeed a gift from God. You don't do it on your own. The Spirit of God draws you and regenerates you and you believe because he changed your heart and mind. That's a gift from God. That's one of the gifts that he gives along with faith and all of the rest of them. We don't have time this morning, but you know what I'm saying. Secondly, and again, this is the one, when I looked at Scripture and I looked at my own life, I had to wonder about it. 
Because the second gift, not only is it a gift to believe, but it's also suffering is a gift. The phrase it is given means to give freely and graciously as a favor. God has gifted the Christian with the favor of suffering. And again, this is a gift from God. With the phrases on behalf of Christ and for his sake, Paul reveals to us God's crowning purpose for our suffering. Again, that's what makes it so valuable. When one suffers for Christ, and again, in the Western world, praise God. I don't know about you guys. I've been thankful for what God has done in history in America and in the churches here. 200 years, think of this, brother. 200 years, for the most part, we've met in peace. That's changing. That's going to change. It already is starting. We know this. COVID did that, tried to do that. Amen. Some churches folded like a cheap suit. Oh, the government says we're not supposed to meet? Okay, we're not going to meet. Really? We did that for, what, a couple weeks, brother? We thought, what is this, Ebola? What's going on here? What is this? And then the elders started looking around out in California, brother. We're looking out in California. We're going, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The baby killing mills are still open. The porn shops are still going. The drug places are still going. Wait a minute. Hold on a minute here. The government's going to tell me and us as believers that we can't gather together around the Lord's table to sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs to hear the word of God preached. Not on your life, brother. <laughs> and you know where most of the persecution came from? Listen, it came from the churches. We were unloving. I can't, I can't tell you how many times I was told I was unloving. You're such an unloving person. Don't you love your neighbor as yourself? Uh, I love the babies you're killing. Right? I love watching the governor at his own drunk parties with his mask off. It was so scary he wouldn't wear a mask, but the rest of you better wear a mask. It's stunning, brother. But listen to me. The persecution is coming. We got a little taste of it. Open them doors back up. People looked at us like we were you know, on another planet. There was a couple of other churches that stayed open. The big ones all folded like a bunch of cheap suits because the government told them to do it. Amazing. And then the persecution, as I said, came mainly from the liberal churches. It was an amazing thing to watch. Now listen, brother. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll, uh, we'll close, finish this up. Look there if you would. 1 Peter chapter 4. Now as we all remember, as we all remember, there's a theme in every chapter of 1 Peter. Anybody remember what it was? There's a theme in every chapter in 1 Peter. Every last one of them. You know what it is? It's persecution and suffering. Every chapter. Of course, we know Nero was doing his bidding at this time. Peter's writing to the church, writing to the brethren, every chapter, persecution and suffering. And look at this glorious thing. See, look how God looks at it, and then we look at it sometimes. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verse number 1. Look there what it says. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same what? With the same mind. There, there's that word again. Think like Christ. 
think like he would think, how he thought, how he walked. And again, he was perfect God in the flesh. But there's where we glean these things from Scripture. Think like he did. Look over to verse 12. Look at there. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. In other words, as Nero was killing Christians and persecuting them in every chapter, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, Paul says, hey, don't think it's weird. Don't think it's a strange thing. You know why? Because when, you, when, you're, when you're living a Christ-like life in the darkness, or the light, the darkness does not like it at all. In fact, look what he says. But rejoice! Inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad, and also with exceeding joy. Look at verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. Joyous are you that you would be counted worthy, as the apostles did in the book of Acts. They were happy. They counted the joy that they would be, again, persecuted for the name of Christ. Look what it says there. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you, on their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Do you see how that's different than we normally look at it? We look at persecution and suffering as something that we don't like. And brethren, I'm not saying it's fun. I'm not saying it's going to be a joyous time. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But it is indeed an identifying mark on you that the glory of God resteth upon you because you are being faithful to God first. Always. Only as we say. In fact, look at one more and we'll, we'll finish up. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Again, as we look together here in the scriptures, Hebrews chapter 11. I think a lot of the martyrs of the past, many men who have stood in the face of death, threat of death, threat of persecution, and all they do is stand there and they say, yes, may I have another. That, that, that is clearly something that the Spirit of God gives to you, the power to stand there. I think of John Rogers, amen, who was being marched to his burning stake, and he's got his wife and his 11 children following behind him, and they kept saying to him, reject Christ, stop teaching Christ, stop doing it. And John Rogers would say, ah, nope, 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 I'm not going to obey you, I'm not going to obey you. And he's, and he's citing Psalm 51. If you want a glorious psalm, he had that memorized. He's citing it as they're walking him to, the, to his own stake to die with his family. And again, like we looked at John Bunyan, what they did to try to do to him using his emotions and his family. That's what they were doing to Rogers. And he goes, no, I will never deny Christ. Never. I think of Thomas Cramner, who, uh, of course, we're familiar with. A man in history who wrote one of the translations of the Bible. And in fact, he, they came to him and they threatened his life. Said, uh, huh, you recant doing that or we're going we're gonna to burn you at the stake. And he says, oh, okay, I, I will. And he, he actually signed a document. And he sat on it for a couple days. And the Lord, this, again, the Spirit of God wouldn't let it sit, wouldn't let it rest. And he finally called for the guards. And the guards came and he goes, I recant. I, I'm, I'm going to recant what I signed. And they said, all right, you're going to the fire. Let's go. Off he went. They drug him to the fire. They, they lit the fire before they tossed him in, actually. And, and, and he said, and he stood before them all, and he said, that which I denied Christ with first will be burned first. 
He stuck his right hand in the fire first because that's what he signed. That's when he denied Christ with that. And he, they burned him at the stake. Brothers, that is something miraculous that takes place. That's power. And so is this what we see here in Hebrews. Listen to this, brethren. Listen when you think of those who looked at Christ and held Christ in such a high view that nothing else mattered. In fact, we'll see the Bible says the world wasn't worthy of any of them. What a glorious thing. Think of this, brethren. That which is going to last forever, the Bible, the word of God, is written down forever. This in Hebrews chapter 11. Listen carefully. Look at verse 35. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourging, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. That means they were cut in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of which the world was not worthy. Do you see that there? What an amazing thing to have written of us. If God would choose to have us be martyrs in the days coming, maybe the children of ours, those that will follow behind us. Eventually, brethren, it's going to happen if you don't capitulate to the world. The world likes darkness. And when one is living their life worthy of the gospel of Christ, that light shines in that dark place. In fact, remember what John wrote? Which, Lord willing, will be going through the Gospel of John when we're done with Philippians. Remember what he wrote? He said this, Light came into the world, but men loved what? Darkness. Yep. This is what we're going to see shining brightly in our own lives. The light of the Gospel is going to shine and is shining in this dark place. Listen for just a moment. Let me close with Charles Spurgeon. What he said. Conversation, which is the main subject, how we live. Conversation is a turning into the right road. The next thing is to walk in it. To strike the first blow is not all the battle. So in other words, just getting on the road is just the beginning. Some who do run well at first have hardly breath enough to keep up the pace. And so turn aside for a little comfort and ease. And do not get onto the road again. Oh, brothers, may, not, may that not be us. Listen as he continues. Such are not genuine Christians. They are only men-made, self-made Christians. And these self-made Christians never hold on. They could never hold on and they never will. Because time wears them out. And they turn back into their former state. Now, brethren, think of that for a moment. Just a moment. Let me close with how I started. Brethren, a church's manner of life is worthy of the gospel only, only if the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed the biggest and brightest thing in the church. He is the one who changes us. He is the one who empowers us to do what we read about in Hebrews and think about John Rogers and Whitecliffe and all these great people of God, Cramner, all of them, what they did. One will never do that on their own, never. You will do what I would do if I'm on my own, if the Spirit of God is not planting me there firmly and soundly, you will run. So will I.
Amen. May the Lord grant unto us power through his word to speak and to say the truth, to be in unity with one another. Amen. For the furtherance of the gospel. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we, we read these things in Scripture. And I have to say, as I've, I've said already, but as I thought over and over again as I was reading the text and studying it out, really, in one sense, how blessed we've been. We've been so blessed to meet in peace. But that is not the norm of the church in world history at all. It started in Acts chapter 2. And what followed immediately was persecution, persecution, persecution. Chased them everywhere. Amen. Even now as we're reading in the book of Philippians again, Paul's encouraging the brethren because just like the law of gravity here on earth that you have instituted, it will not change. When you drop something that's heavier than air, and it falls to the ground. It'll just naturally do that. And this morning we certainly see in scriptures and what we've read and heard together that if one is living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, just like the law of sowing and reaping, it never changes. Oh yes, the enemies of God will persecute us. It is a gift of God. It is a gift given to us that you would count us worthy and make us worthy through the effectual working of Christ and his meritorious work. And Father, we thank you for that and we pray for that because I am convinced and do believe as times get tougher and tougher, we're going to experience this. We're going to have to decide. We're going to have to pick a side. We're going to have to say, oh, no, no matter what. Burn me at the stake. Do whatever that needs to come, but I will never, ever forsake Christ. Will you give us, Father, the power the strength to do that, to stand. Lord, I pray for those who are lost here this morning. Pray that maybe today is the day that they will hear the shepherd's voice. They will hear the call of God upon them. And they will indeed come. They will indeed come to the shepherd. They will hear his voice and follow him. Father, we pray for them, the lost sheep of God. Father, now as we gather around the Lord's table together as believers, we again are proclaiming something to the world, aren't we, brethren? We're proclaiming that we believe every jot and every tittle. Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament words, and into the Gospels, and clear into the end of Revelation chapter 22, that we believe every word every preserved word that you have given to us. And we are indeed proclaiming that Christ died in our stead. He took our place. He got what we deserved, and we were given by the Father his imputed righteousness. We were given his goodness. And Father, it is there 
where the church is made worthy in what you have done for us. We thank you now and pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.